Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland. I'm a professor at York University in Toronto. We're continuing in the series, The Historical Jesus in Context. So far, we've been getting a good idea of how difficult it is to get at the historical Jesus, stemming from issues regarding the nature of our sources and the limits of historical method. Historical method allows us only to say so much when we have such limited sources regarding a figure like this peasant Jesus who lived in first century Galilee. Today's episode and the following episode moves on to two modern scholars attempts to recreate who that historical Jesus was. There's a sense in which the discussion of John Dominic Crossan's portrait of the historical Jesus and E.P. Sanders' portrait of the historical Jesus will allow us to see two things. On the one hand, it will expand on what I've been observing already regarding the limits of historical method. Secondly, this discussion of these two scholars' portraits of Jesus will allow us to begin to get into the evidence itself and start to see how a scholar grapples with and interprets the primary sources we have when trying to reconstruct a figure like the historical Jesus. Overall, there is some frustration you might experience in seeing these two very different portrayals of Jesus by two very solid and well-trained scholars who are both approaching the same sources and nonetheless come up with very different portraits of who the historical Jesus was. For Crossan, Jesus was a non-apocalyptic, egalitarian peasant. For Sanders, Jesus was perceived as an apocalyptic prophet. So we'll begin to learn why it is they come up with a different portrait of Jesus, but we'll also begin to see the difficulties that are involved in such a project. And this may set the stage for how we can approach placing Jesus within a first century Judean and Galilean context in the remainder of these episodes regarding the historical Jesus. The main books I use from each of these scholars to illustrate their views of the historical Jesus are, first of all, for John Dominic Crossan, The Historical Jesus, The Life of a Mediterranean Jewish Peasant. This was published, first of all, back in the early 1990s, in 1992 to be precise. There's two particular books that I drew on in order to understand E.P. Sanders' view of things regarding the historical Jesus. One is Jesus and Judaism which was published back in the 1980s, 1985, and also is more popularly accessible, The Historical Figure of Jesus. There are many other scholars who could be discussed and whose views are important on the historical Jesus, but for the sake of brevity and to illustrate my points, I've chosen these two scholars in part because they come up with somewhat opposing views on Jesus, particularly regarding the issue of apocalypticism with Crossan presenting a non-apocalyptic Jesus, and E.P. Sanders suggesting that apocalypticism was at the heart of the historical Jesus. 
I hope you enjoy this episode and come back again. So today's discussion, I'm going to move on to uh, scholarly attempts to get at the Jewish peasant Jesus. And then subsequent to that, we ourselves are going to try and work our way through some of the evidence and become even more familiar with the difficulties involved in trying to get at that peasant Jesus. But today I'm going to talk about two portraits. I'm going to use John Dominic Crossan's portrait of Jesus as an egalitarian peasant and another common portrait. I'm going to use E.P. Sanders' portrait of Jesus as an apocalyptic prophet, which coincides almost precisely with what Ehrman thinks. So Ehrman's chapter that you read fits with E.P. Sanders. And we're going to use these two different scholars to, uh, as, for various reasons. One is to get an idea of how historians approach this question of getting at the Jewish peasant Jesus. We're going to use these two to illustrate the difficulties. But we're also going to use it as a quick glimpse into some of the evidence as well and see how historians put together evidence and, and drop a hypothesis about the peasant Jesus. The two portraits are an egalitarian peasant on the one hand and an apocalyptic prophet on the other. John Dominic Crossan's book, the larger version of it is called The Historical Jesus, The Life of a Mediterranean Jewish Peasant, written in the early 90s. The thing that was a significant progress in the study of the Jewish peasant in this book is the explicitness with which John Dominic Crossan presents his method. He is very careful to explicitly outline exactly what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. He sticks by his method to the T and makes it blatant all the way through. The good thing about this, from a historian's viewpoint, is the ability to test that hypothesis and to understand how Crossan is working when he pulls together different evidence. Let me talk about his methods. First of all, Crossan talks about the need to take into consideration an interdisciplinary approach to getting at a peasant, namely that you can use anthropological and sociological studies of peasant societies to begin to understand things about peasants generally, cross-culturally. Anthropological and sociological studies of peasant societies play an, an important role in his overall portrait of Jesus. On top of that, he emphasizes the need for Jesus to fit in the ancient Mediterranean. So he's very concerned with context. However, the way he's concerned with context may be problematic. Namely, he's interested in Jesus as a Mediterranean peasant. What's the Mediterranean? A huge area. So when he talks about context, he has that broader vision in mind. Less the Galilean Jesus, more the Mediterranean Jesus. But nonetheless, he's explicit about the fact that he's going to do it this way. The next thing he does is to date the strata and create strata for our evidence. Now this is a step that is debatable, but he's explicit about what he does and how he does it. So he says, let's set up four strata 
from different time periods. So the earliest strata being from 30 to 60, the next strata being from 60 to 90 CE, the next strata be whatever it may be, right? It's a couple decades each of his strata. He then has to decide though, this is where the choices come in, right? Where a different historian might different, make different choices. But he then categorizes what he thinks is earlier than something else. So some things that are in Q could be in early strata. Paul is in the early strata. There's the decision that Crossan makes, and it's a decision, it's an argument that some other scholars have made. And that is that the Gospel of Thomas has material that goes back to a very early strata. So much so that Crossan will frequently use the Gospel of Thomas as a key source for the historical Jesus. Meanwhile, some other historians will say quite a different thing about the Gospel of Thomas and say that it's late and it's derivative from the synoptics and therefore would not consider anything in the Gospel of Thomas early. So he uses extra canonical writings extensively. Another value in his study is that because previous to his writing, few people really extensively delved into materials outside of the Bible itself for studying the historical Jesus. Now, as to whether you agree with each of his decisions and how he approaches that is another issue. But it was good that he started to expand things that way. So once he has strata, he then organizes the sayings into what he calls complexes. In other words, if you have multiple sayings of Jesus preserved in different sources that have to do with Jesus relating to children, he'll call that the Jesus and children complex. So he gathers together sayings that are different based on themes. He then is a stickler for multiple attestation. He almost never will consider any evidence unless it's multiply attested independently. Now, that choice there, he's conscious about, may be omitting, and he knows this, may be omitting things that Jesus said and did. The point isn't that Jesus didn't say and do those things. His point is, that we have no way as a historian of evaluating the likelihood of Jesus having said or done those things, unless we have independent attestation. So he solely works with things that are multiply attested and puts a priority on the ones that are earliest, in the earliest strata. But remember, the choices of where things fit, that was a choice he made to put them there in the first place. This whole transparent method is the best way to go because it allows you to, as a historian and you as students, when you're reading a scholar who's explicit about their method, you can start to say, okay, this, this is how they come up with what they've got. I disagree with their decisions in the way they were doing it, but I know how they ended up with this portrait of Jesus. Enough about method. Let's move on to what he ends up with as a result of this quite sophisticated attempt to get at the historical Jesus. His overall view of Jesus is a countercultural egalitarian peasant, a peasant who is about reconceiving peasant society and recreating peasant society on the local level to create an egalitarian, an equal society for those peasants. A society where peasants aren't exploited anymore is a way of putting it, where people are on an equal footing. In order to build up this portrait, he does several things. One is he uses extensively Horsley's studies of the situation in first century Palestine. So the book you're reading, Bandits, Prophets, and Messiahs, is a bit of a summary of Horsley's many studies that he's done, including more scholarly works and journals. 
Crossan is heavily dependent on Horsley's portrayal of first century Palestine. And that portrayal is focused on class and class division. It's focused on class conflict theory of history. Namely, that society in first century Palestine, in Israel and Galilee and Judea, was characterized by a division between a very small segment of the society who had power, the aristocrats, and the vast majority of the population, the peasantry, who are exploited. Peasantry work the land, the food that they produce ends up being recirculated in a way that profits the aristocracy, that profits the upper classes. And that first century Palestine was a society where the peasants were working at the bare minimum, barely being able to feed their own families. And that anything happening could bring them below that level and make them bandits, for example, that you're reading about in Horsley. They're, they're at subsistence level, farmers. So all of that is very important for Crossan's portrait here. He has that sketch of the economic situation and the societal situation in first century Palestine. And that's what he sees as the key to understanding the historical Jesus in an overall way. Let's move on to another key issue before we uh, delve into the kingdom of God and how he interprets the kingdom of God. Crossan's portrait of Jesus posits discontinuity between John the baptizer and Jesus. It proposes discontinuity, at least at the point at which we have Jesus doing his own thing, at the point at which the material of his sayings in that comes from. He may have agreed with John the Baptist at one point in Crossan's view. In other words, when Jesus was baptized, he considers that one of the highly probable things Jesus did, and that was be baptized by John the Baptist. However, at a later point, Jesus diverged significantly from John the Baptist's whole program. Let me explain that program because you won't understand the rest of the discussion unless you understand something about apocalypticism. The word apocalypse just means revelation, right? It's the Greek word for revelation. When scholars use the word apocalyptic to describe something, they're describing a certain worldview. They're talking about a certain way of looking at the world that they notice some ancient Judeans had. In the case of Crossan, he's saying Jesus didn't think like this at the time of his own activity. He may have thought like this earlier. This worldview is this. We're living in an evil age dominated by evil powers. This evil age will not last forever. God has a plan to end this evil age. God will intervene in a cataclysmic way, in a massive way God will intervene. Wipe out evil and establish a righteous society, a kingdom of God, what have you. So that whole scenario right there is not what all first century Judeans and Galileans think. However, it is posited by some scholars that Jesus thought that. Crossan is arguing he did not think that. The key is this. Crossan does not believe Jesus thought that there was a future kingdom to wait for. Crossan believes that Jesus believed that the kingdom is already here and that Jesus was already enacting the kingdom of God, and that that kingdom of God, we'll soon see, is that uh, ideal peasant society of equality, of no exploitation by the upper classes anymore, etc. So there's a difference between a present kingdom of God we're going to get into soon and a future one, and the idea of a future kingdom goes along with the apocalyptic worldview to some degree, because the apocalyptic worldview says God has a plan to intervene in a cataclysmic way. 
The intervention is setting up his kingdom, setting up his rule, reestablishing his rule in a more fundamental way. Kingdom and rule are very closely related here. Don't necessarily think of kingdom as a place. Think of it as a rulership, God's rulership, God's kingdom. So let me say something more. So we're living in an evil age, is the apocalyptic worldview. God has a plan to bring that evil age to an end. Sometimes there'll be a figure that God sends to help bring about that uh, completion and intervention that will establish a kingdom that is for the righteous, right? And so sometimes there's the idea of a kingly figure coming, a messianic figure being sent by God as part of God intervening to set up and wipe out evil and set up his final kingdom. Sometimes Judeans might think it was a prophetic figure that will come when God is going to finally come and establish his kingdom on earth and establish his rulership over earth more fully. Some might think it's an angelic figure that God is going to send an angel to fight the final battle against evil and establish God's kingdom. Right? So there's different, there's different nuances to how people thought apocalyptically. Sometimes it involved a kingly figure, a messianic figure. Sometimes it didn't. But let's move back a step further. Not everyone even had the apocalyptic worldview. This apocalypticism is very important for understanding the portrait of Jesus. Because we're going to soon see that Ehrman thinks he's an apocalyptic prophet, as does Sanders. Uh, Crossan thinks that Jesus was not an apocalyptic prophet. Jesus did not hold the view that there was a coming time when God would establish his kingdom, in Crossan's view. Marcus Borg is another historian who likewise believes that Jesus the peasant was not an apocalyptic thinker, did not look forward to a future time when God would establish his kingdom, instead conceived of the kingdom as somehow now already. But let's move on to explaining this now, the kingdom, how Crossan looks at sayings of Jesus in which Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. When Crossan begins with this issue of the kingdom of God, remember that the phrase kingdom of God, or in, in Matthew's Gospels, kingdom of the heavens, but anyways, kingdom of God occurs in all of our sources attributed to Jesus, and that Jesus is frequently in all of our sources talking about the kingdom of God. I know of no historian who would say that the kingdom of God element isn't somehow related to the historical Jesus. Right, so this is one of the more historically recognized things about Jesus, and that is that he talked about the kingdom of God. The only question historians debate is what did he mean by kingdom of God? Crossan begins with sayings attributed to Jesus that are very early in his opinion, that are in that early strata that he put it in that early strata, and that have multiple attestation, including that they're attested in the Gospel of Thomas. Often he'll begin with the Gospel of Thomas because he believes, Crossan does, that some of the sayings of Jesus preserved in the Gospel of Thomas are more likely what Jesus said than the way that they're presented in the Synoptic Gospels. That's his own opinion. But what he begins with is multiply attested sayings about the Kingdom of God that he has in the Gospel of Thomas, in Q, and perhaps in other sources. Or in the Gospel of Thomas and Mark, multiple sources, independent of each other and begins with those and tries to figure out what do these sayings about Jesus mean. The quick way of summarizing what Crossan thinks about the kingdom of God in Jesus' conception is a kingdom of nobodies. That's how Crossan puts it. What does he mean by nobodies? He means people that are traditionally considered insignificant 
are the ones that are going to be in the kingdom of God. He begins with sayings like the Gospel of Thomas, saying 22, which is also attested in the Synoptic Gospels. Jesus saw infants being suckled. He said to his disciples, these infants being suckled are like those who enter the kingdom. In the ancient context, they didn't have quite a, uh, the same view of children as we have. We're not saying everyone in the ancient world didn't like children. That's not the point. From that sort of notion of what you could say a low view of children that is common in the Mediterranean world, Crossan argues, we have here Jesus saying people who are insignificant, the nobodies, are the ones that are in the kingdom of God according to that peasant Jesus. So there he was working with multiple attestation, a saying that's attested early and in multiple sources, and it's a saying about Jesus saying children are the ones that are in the kingdom of God, or people like children. Saying number 54 is another one that Crossan uses to develop this idea of a kingdom of nobodies. Saying number 54 in the Gospel of Thomas is this. It's a fairly brief one, and you'll be familiar with it. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus conceived in Crossan's Reconstruction. Jesus conceived of a kingdom that was a kingdom of nobodies. People who don't have power are the people in the kingdom of God. Another favorite parable of Jesus, and parables are stories that Jesus tells or that a figure tells, using something from everyday life to illustrate a point. So you talk about the sparrows doing something in order to say something about life. Or you talk about cutting down the wheat and separating the wheat from the chaff in order to make an illustration. This parables that Jesus taught in parables, we'll soon see, is generally recognized as a highly probable thing. And one of the parables that Crossan really highlights is the one where there's a banquet. And this is preserved both in the Gospel of Thomas and in Q. The story Jesus tells is that there was a, a guy getting ready to throw a banquet. He sends out invitations to different people. Each of those people give excuses and say, eh, I can't come. Each of the people are sort of important people, people in the network of that wealthy person that's inviting them to a banquet. Each of the people reject the invitation, have a good excuse, but nonetheless reject it. It depends on which version, whether you go to Matthew, Luke, or Thomas, but nonetheless, it ends with Jesus telling the story where the person inviting people to the banquet says, go out and invite either randomly from the streets or go and invite the people that are the nobodies in society, expressed in different ways. So this is another parable that to cross and is essential to understanding how Jesus conceived of the kingdom of God. So I think you've got the idea of what Crossan means by kingdom of nobodies. And remember that he's thinking of this as something taught by a peasant, himself somewhat a nobody within the overall picture of the Roman imperial context. The next element in how Crossan explains the kingdom of God is that it's here and now. That Jesus had the concept, Crossan believes, of the kingdom already being established and that it is a kingdom of nobodies. So that his hanging out with sinners, his hanging out with prostitutes, his hanging out with the poor is all part of this picture of establishing a current peasant society. The kingdom of God is this ideal egalitarian society as part of God's rule, as part of God's reign, a part of what God meant it to be all along. The point hasn't been we all have to agree with Cross, and the point is to see how some historians have been approaching the Jewish peasant Jesus and see the, the results they end up with. Let's talk some more about this kingdom here and now. Let me just give you 
a couple sayings that are very important to Crossan's reconstruction. Saying number three in the Gospel of Thomas, also attested in a different form in Q, in both Matthew and Luke. Jesus said, if those who lead you say to you, see, the kingdom is in the sky, then the birds of the sky will precede you. If they say to you, it is in the sea, then the fish will precede you. Rather, the kingdom is inside of you, and it is outside of you. When you come to know yourselves, then you will become known, and you will realize that it is you who are the sons of the living Father. In other words, this idea of you are the kingdom of God right now. Sayings like that are very important to cross and Let me give you one more example. 113 of Gospel of Thomas. This is a very important one because this shows a portrayal, at least in the Gospel of Thomas, a portrayal of the disciples having an apocalyptic worldview where there's, God is going to intervene in the future and establish his kingdom in a full way. When will it come? When will the kingdom come? The disciples are portrayed as saying. And this is what Jesus' saying is preserved in the uh, Gospel of Thomas. It will not come by waiting for it. It will not be a matter of saying, here it is or there it is. Rather, the kingdom of the Father is spread out upon the earth, and men do not see it. It's already here. Now, those are sayings in the Jesus traditions, right? They're in Q and in the Gospel of Thomas. So even a historian who says that Jesus is apocalyptic has to deal with this, that sometimes Jesus does talk as though the kingdom he conceives is a present thing. There are other sayings, though, that Crossan believes are not primary, are not the ones to use as the key to interpreting Jesus, that are future. The other historians will use those more. So you're starting to see some of the issues that are involved in this. So now we've got a kingdom of nobodies. It's here and now. In Crossan's interpretation of the peasant Jesus, Jesus himself thought like this. That Jesus had a program on how to live out the rule of God in the present. On how, therefore, to be part of the kingdom of God in the present. And so Crossan outlines what he feels that Jesus the peasant's program was. And it involves two main things. Meals and healing. Magic entailing healing. Crossan points to what is known as the mission discourse. And that is the saying of Jesus that's preserved in multiple sources very early, in which Jesus says to some of his followers, go out and do certain things. And do not take with you any money. In some cases, do not take any sandals with you. Do not carry a bag. Don't take extra clothes. Go out and do these things. And in those sayings, these things are often healing. And entailed in healing is when you go to a place, in the Jesus saying, it says, when you go to a place, go into a house, and if they accept you, eat with them. Healing and eating. Healing and eating in a peasant society. A more uh, interactive, community sort of orientation that Jesus was advocating in Crossan's view. So Crossan interprets, first of all, he agrees that Jesus was perceived as a healer. In other words, contemporaries saw Jesus as a healer. We'll soon see that most scholars would agree on that. That those healings were interpreted, though, by Jesus within a broader program of what the kingdom of God is. His idea of egalitarianism, equality, which I believe is a bit of a projection from the modern period myself, is based mainly on the meal issue, eating together without distinction. So uh, this is something that's important to mention. 
this has all kinds of implications and actually tells you how Crossan views the Jewish peasant Jesus in relation to ritual law and laws of purity. Crossan believes that Jesus didn't give a damn, or whatever phrase you want to use, about the food laws and about purity. Crossan believes that Jesus thought of eating together without any distinction, including no distinction about having to be pure and having to be, live according to the Torah with regard to food laws. So this overall view of Jesus, though, it, it goes against what we're soon going to see as another common portrait of Jesus, namely a Jesus that's very much a part of Judean culture and very much involved in interpreting Torah and applying it, including issues of purity. Crossan's interpretation of law, though, derives not from an analysis of sources with regard to the law and to, with regard to Galilee and what the context of Jesus may have been. It derives from Crossan's interpretation of Jesus being all about egalitarianism. I think you've got enough of a view of Jesus, the egalitarian peasant, whose healing program and bringing in the unwanted in society and accepting them and being equal together and having meals together, not worrying about purity concerns. This is the portrait of Jesus that Crossan has. Now let me move ahead to the execution. I'll just quickly say to you that Crossan does not believe the passion narratives that we have are historical. He believes they are far, far, far away from historical. He believes they are constructed based on interpretations of Hebrew scripture, of the Hebrew Bible. That the current passion narratives are creations of a story of Jesus' arrest and execution that center on showing Jesus fulfilling the prophecies of the Hebrew Bible. So that's his opinion about the passion narratives. Not all historians agree with that. He thinks the earliest passion narrative isn't in the New Testament. This is, doesn't come as a surprise after a little while of reading Crossan and seeing how he approaches things. He thinks the Gospel of Peter preserves the earliest, it's outside the New Testament, preserves the earliest instance of a passion narrative. So I won't say much more about that besides mentioning it. Now as to the execution of Jesus, What's interesting about Crossan is Crossan is writing after E.P. Sanders, the guy we're going to talk about soon. And he adopts E.P. Sanders' explanation in part of the execution of Jesus, even though his portrait of Jesus is entirely different. Namely, Crossan believes Jesus going into the temple and overturning the tables is a highly probable historical incident. And he believes that that is actually the key to understanding why Jesus got in trouble on one Passover and got arrested and somehow ended up being executed. However, Crossan does not really fully develop his explanation of why Jesus was executed. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The opening music of this series in the podcast is Paradise Lost by Namgyal Lamo, a Tibetan artist. You can find her on the web and you can buy her CDs at Amazon.